Revelation chapter 20. And once again, I'd like to read just the first six verses of this chapter. As we begin, John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. As we approach this passage once again, won't make a lot of references to it this morning, probably a little more next week. We're going to take up the topic of the resurrection of the dead. As we do, let's look to the Lord once again in prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful once again for the Word of God and for its teachings. We're thankful for the Savior who has come to live according to this book perfectly, in perfect obedience. Not only to be our example, but to die on the cross and be the sacrifice for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. We thank you, dear Lord, for this blessed promise to those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you, dear Lord, that you have come to earth and done these things and accomplished fully salvation for your people. We ask now that you would bless us as we look into your word. We desire to understand the word of God. One of the reasons we come is so that we might gather around it and learn from it. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We have no understanding, no clear understanding of what is written here by the Spirit without the aid of the Spirit to teach us what it means. So we ask your blessing on this present passage that we are going to try to learn from, and I pray that we might learn also, as we will today, from uh, men who have walked the Christian walk before us, meditated upon these teachings from your word, and have sat down in writing things that are helpful. We thank you, dear Lord, for this time. Bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I've mentioned this before. When hearing or reading these opening verses of Revelation, many modern Christians automatically imagine an end times timeline of a secret rapture with people left behind, cars swerving off the road, a seven-year tribulation period with all of its apocalyptic uh, horrors, Christ returning to reign on earth in a millennial golden age with a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and lions lying down with lambs. Now this scenario has to be true, people think, 
Because after all, we've heard it so many times. We've read the books. We've even seen it in the movies. So it must be true. But though this passage has been studied for nearly 2,000 years, most Christians for most of church history would never have read this passage uh, in the way that I just described. They never would have imagined the scenario that I just described and gathered it from this passage. Unfortunately, most of the or one of the most important doctrines, I think, that uh, is, has suffered as a result of this relatively new interpretation is the doctrine of what is called the general resurrection. What happens to the body and the soul after death? Clear and careful attention to biblical teaching on this matter, in my humble opinion, has been woefully lacking in our day. I spent, uh, I've spent more than 40 years in Bible-believing churches, I don't believe I ever heard a sermon or even a lesson in any significant detail on what the Bible actually teaches about the resurrection of the dead. Of course, many references have been made to it in a general sense. I think much of the lack of knowledge is at least partially due uh, to the prevalence of dispensational theology, especially in its interpretation of Revelation 20, which I think has led to a lot of confusion on a very important topic. I've already talked about the biblical evidence uh, in support of the ancient interpretation of the meaning of the binding of Satan. It begins with the thousand-year period in Revelation 20. And I've already mentioned last time that I do not believe that is a future event. I think it's more likely that it's a symbolic representation, the binding of Satan, of what took place at Jesus' first coming. We might say that that event uh, was the bruising of the serpent's head that ultimately would result in his demise. The power that Jesus exhibited over the demonic world, the power of the gospel that he preached, and its power to save, despite the devil's great opposition, all of that indicated that the kingdom of God had come upon them, as Jesus said. For how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus was speaking of what he had accomplished at his first coming. Only when Satan is released for a little season can he unite the nations in a, in a worldwide kingdom of Antichrist. That kingdom will end with the return of Christ and the last judgment, which I believe marks the end of the thousand years. Now, in keeping with that interpretation, the golden age for believers is not our time on earth. Golden age for believers uh, is the reign of the saints, which I believe is described in verses 4 through 6. As I mentioned last time, the participants in verses 4 through 6 give us an indication that this is a heavenly scene. The individuals that John sees in verses 4 through 6, which we just read, are souls. I believe that means they are disembodied spirits of those who had been killed for the word of God or those who we might say had been crucified with Christ, had been killed for the word of God for refusing to worship the beast and receive his mark. The author of Hebrews alludes, I think, to these particular souls in heaven uh, when, he, when he describes the spiritual state of believers and he says that they have been joined, that we uh, in our born-again condition have been joined to the spirits of just men made perfect. 
All of these references describe what is uh, referred to by theologians as the intermediate state. You might have heard that term if you've read any theology books. The intermediate state simply means the time in between death on earth, when the souls of believers immediately enter the presence of God, and the resurrection of the body at the last day, which occurs along with Christ's second coming. We're going to talk about all of these uh, things uh, this week and next time. That's where our study of Revelation has brought us uh, for today. This passage, I think, is one of the most important reference points for understanding the general resurrection, but it does coincide with other uh, passages that we will look at uh, as we study. I'd like to spend some time this morning talking about some of the erroneous views of life after death, or we might call it the afterlife, uh, that have uh, arisen throughout the centuries. Gallup polling began asking Americans in 1944 if they believed in heaven and hell. It may surprise many to hear that the answers really haven't changed a whole lot since then. As of just a few years ago, over 80% of Americans believe in heaven. I don't know that that's changed much. About 60% believe in hell, however they define it. Both of those numbers are obviously a significant majority. As far as specific beliefs about what those terms mean, there is a great difference of opinion. And I think a lot of this maybe is the devil's strategy. The devil's strategy is to... Uh, obviously add confusion to any important spiritual topic, sort of like what a politician or a lawyer does. They use a tactic called muddying the waters where they just add a, they flood the zone with information, some false, some true, uh, to the point where people start wondering, they don't even know what to believe anymore. And it seems that that's what the devil has done regarding life after death. The devil employs that tactic well because His purposes are served when there is simply mass confusion. What happens to a person after death is a marketplace with a million opinions. I think there are a few subjects on which uh, so much is pulled out of thin air. People just venture opinions on something that they know absolutely nothing about. The only reliable source of information we have is the scripture, what God has revealed to us. In this divine source book, There's no greater treasury of knowledge about life after death than the book of Revelation, which speaks about it frequently. Now, we won't even begin to cover all of the views that have have been posed over the centuries on this topic. My primary concern is that many of these views, these erroneous views, have crept into the church and influenced people's opinions, and, and they've persisted among many that name the name of Christ. In many cases, uh, even those who don't hold these erroneous views that we're going to talk about, don't hold them openly, uh, may have been influenced by them indirectly and may carry certain aspects of those erroneous views along with their biblical understanding. And I think that's why it's good for us to be able to recognize them. So the errors I'm going to talk about, most of them have been around since the early church. I say maybe, maybe all of them have been. And they've come under different names over the centuries. Uh, But I would say that all of them still exist in some form to this day. So let's talk about some of these major errors uh, that have crept into the, not just into the world of unbelief. Of course, we would expect them to hold erroneous views. 
But let's talk about some of these that have crept also into the church. Let's begin with dualism. Dualism is an old pagan notion. It's the idea that the spirit and the body, or the spiritual and the material, are at war with each other. And the spirit and the body represent the war of good versus evil. It teaches that the soul is good, but the body is bad. And that the body is of less value than the soul. And that for that reason, death is actually a good thing because it sets the spirit free from the body. We've heard that notion, right? Even in Christian circles, that idea floats around. And that belief is often combined with the pagan idea of the immortality of the soul. That says that the spirit, once it's separated from the body, is free to pursue greater things than it could possibly achieve if it were dragged down by the body. Now, I think Christians can sometimes fall into that way of thinking also. That's not what the biblical view is. The biblical view is that man, who is created in the image of God, is made up of both body and soul, and that both have great value and importance. The fact that the body dies is really the result of the curse of sin. It's not because it has less value. If Adam had never sinned, his created body would have lived forever in its glorious form, and God had already pronounced that to be good, not bad, not evil. There will be a future bodily resurrection when believers, as believers, will be reunited with our bodies, which will then be glorified and free from sin. Historically, both Jews and Christians have recognized the value of the body and have shown great respect for it in death by giving it a proper burial. Jesus himself, after his death, was lovingly prepared for burial. God himself buried the body of Moses. None of them were cremated. Cremation existed at the time. That was the pagan practice. Uh, Of course, cremation has become common today, and I'm not lecturing on whether to cremate or not, but consider that Paul described the burial of the body uh, as something that is being planted like a seed, a seed that is being planted looking to a future resurrection. Let's consider a second uh, error about the afterlife that's crept into the church, and uh, I would refer to it as compartmentalization. Uh, That's not a theological term. It's simply the idea that heaven and hell are divided into various compartments for various purposes and for various categories of people or for use at different times in the plan of God. There is some biblical basis, I think, uh, certainly for degrees of torment in hell. There is a biblical uh, basis for levels of authority in heaven, certainly. One of the great treatises in church History, this is the multi, if you've ever studied church history, you might have come across Philip Schaff. Uh, He's one of those genius historians that come along once in a century, I guess, multi-volume, very detailed. But he says, and I'm quoting Philip Schaff here, he says that the heathen notions of the future life were vague and confused. The Hindus, Babylonians, and Egyptians had a lively sense of immortality, but they were mixed with the idea of endless migrations and transformations. The Buddhists, starting from the idea that existence is want and want is suffering, make it the chief end of man to escape such migrations 
and by various mortifications to prepare for final absorption in nirvana. The popular belief among the ancient Greeks and Romans was that man passes after death into the underworld, the Greek Hades and the Roman Orcus. According to Homer, Hades is a dark abode in the interior of the earth with an entrance at the western extremity of the ocean where the rays of the sun do not penetrate. Charon carries the dead over the stream Acheron, and the three-headed dog Cerberus watches the entrance and allows none to pass out. There the spirits exist in a disembodied state and lead a shadowy dream life. I'm quoting from Philip Schaff. So what the pagans couldn't know because they didn't have the scriptures, they simply imagined. And they imagined a great mythology based on their notions of what comes after death. But interestingly, the notion of different compartments in the afterlife is still taught even among those who claim to derive their uh, doctrines only from the Bible. When I attended Bible college over 40 years ago, that college held to the dispensationalist system, we were taught that uh, what we actually call heaven and hell were only the final destination of the righteous and the wicked. We were taught that when Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today I will be with you in paradise, he was referring to a temporary place of blessedness for believers who died before Christ's return. Lazarus, you remember the beggar in Jesus' story in Luke chapter 16, he died and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That was also said to be either the same as paradise or another temporary holding place, perhaps for Old Testament saints. The rich man in the parable died and lifted up his eyes in torments. We were taught that that was most likely a temporary compartment of hell. Suggesting that these were all separate, or these are all separate compartments, <clears throat> really is not, it's not a central teaching of dispensationalism, as far as I know. But I think it does add further confusion to what I think for most Christians is already a confusing topic, a muddy topic. The truth is that to divide heaven and hell into various compartments really has almost no biblical support. It's never been agreed upon by the church as a whole. We'll get to that point later. Let's consider a third error about the afterlife, and that's called soul sleep. It's also called psychopanicism. Actually, uh, John Calvin wrote a book called Psychopanachia, a refutation of the error entertained by some unskillful persons who ignorantly imagine that in the interval between death and the judgment, the soul sleeps. Calvin wrote that book uh, really as a response to what was becoming a popular notion in the early years of the Reformation. It's the ancient notion that existed among the Jews, and it was carried into the early church. Now, there are a few passages, and we've all read them when we're reading, especially in the Old Testament, that if we take those verses alone, they, they almost seem to appear to teach soul sleep. For example, Psalm 6 and verse 5 says that in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who shall give you thanks? There are some other passages where the scripture speaks of departed uh, individuals as if they're sleeping and they will awaken at an appointed time. I do believe that verses like these are speaking of the body, not the soul. In fact, they seem to become very simple if we simply think of them in terms of the body. 
The New Testament, as we know more than once, teaches that upon death, the soul of the believer doesn't die or sleep. It's immediately transported to be with Christ. Now, historically in the church, the idea of soul sleep, it existed in the early church, like really all of these errors, uh, but it, it died out for a time, and then during the Reformation, it came back, it revived, and it was mostly the Anabaptists, the more radical among the Anabaptists who revived it. Uh, it was believed uh, to be a good tool to use against the Roman Catholic Church. Now, why would that be? Well, of course, the Roman Catholic Church uh, tends to exalt departed saints uh, as mediators, encouraging people, for example, to pray to Mary. Someone has said, if it were established that the soul falls asleep at death and will not awake to consciousness till again united with the body at the resurrection, then the Pope would be excluded from the larger half of his domain and deprived of the most lucrative branches of his trade. There would be neither saints to whom divine honors could be paid, nor purgatory out of which poor souls might be delivered according to the number of well-paid masses that were said for them. Quoting from Henry uh, Beveridge, the translator, 19th century translator of Calvin. We don't make up doctrines, of course, just because they might be useful. The Anabaptist teaching of soul sleep prompted John Calvin to write this book, uh, Psychopanachia. John Calvin lays out the biblical evidence against it, but unfortunately that error hasn't gone away. It's still around today. But let's continue to our fourth error about life after death, and that is purgatory. Purgatory came fairly early into the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, technically, it's a form of compartmentalization, but we might say that purgatory is a holding place between heaven and hell, a, an, a, an intermediary place where souls may go that their sins might be purged. David Engelsma, in his book, Things Which Must Shortly Come to Pass, he describes purgatory in this way. He says, Purgatory is the place in which souls, the souls of the saints are purged or purified of the pollution of sin that continues to defile them upon their death. The saints purge themselves of this pollution by suffering punishment for their sins. Only after thus purging themselves by satisfying for their sins are the souls of the saints received into heavenly bliss and glory. End quote. Now, I think immediately it might come to your mind as it does to mine, which we could never in a million years purge our own sins, no matter how much we suffered in purgatory. Our suffering for our sins doesn't cleanse us of our sins. Not only that, but of course, Scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. There's no intermediary holding place where we might have a second chance after death. Now, how do Roman Catholics justify this doctrine? Well, they, they do use a verse out of the Apocrypha, uh, those books that were written mostly in between the Testaments, the Catholics do use a book from 2 Maccabees to defend uh, where it talks about praying for the dead. That's one of the ways they justify purgatory. They've also used 1 Corinthians 3.13, which says that each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Well, that just proves it, right? Actually, not at all. As a matter of fact, I believe that passage is speaking primarily 
to ministers and their ministries. And I think it's what, what is burned up there is not sins, but the works, mostly the works of ministers that are, are, are not fruitful. They are not bearing good fruit. As with many errors in the church, the heresies are ancient. They're often of unknown origin, but the attempts to defend them continue on. Now, historically, purgatory was connected to several other Catholic heresies, including prayers and masses for the dead. Those are said to ease the torment and shorten the length of time that must be spent in purgatory. And, of course, the concept of indulgences uh, in the form of money or service given to the church, that was claimed to relieve the suffering of loved ones in purgatory, and it was one of the great money-making tools of the Roman Catholic Church. You know the story, most likely, of Martin Luther. One of his great adversaries was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. He was an indulgence salesman, and he developed his sales pitch to a science. He would say, Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from what you can redeem us for a pittance, meaning money. He would close his sales pitch with his most famous line, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul out of purgatory springs. And uh, let's not be too partisan in our criticism of the Catholics for their money-making schemes. I think uh, we as evangelicals also have much of our own sordid history of tactics used to raise money. Well, let's continue on to the fifth and final error uh, regarding the afterlife, and that is annihilation. Annihilation is the belief that at death, the believer's entire being, soul and body, is annihilated and ceases to exist. Annihilation is held by many modern cults. It's the common identifier, in fact, one of the common identifiers that identifies a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, uh, many theological liberals as well, all believe in annihilation. But I think more shockingly is that even some professed Bible-believing evangelicals have taught this. For example, the late John Stott, uh, his commentaries are still found on conservative websites, conservative bookstores. I actually used a, a commentary of John Stott years ago when I was preaching, I think, from James or 1 John. Asahel Nettleton, the great evangelist during America's second Great Awakening, uh, that took place actually right after the forming of the American government, approximately 1795 to 1835. And I think he gives some excellent advice. I've read this before, but you know, one of the advantages of getting older is you can repeat yourself and get away with it. Everybody just accepts it. I think he gives some excellent advice for those who might be tempted to deny something just because it's unpleasant. And believe me, belief in eternal damnation, that's unpleasant for all of us as believers. We believe it because we believe the authority of the author of this book, and for that reason we believe it's true. But this is what um, um, Nettleton says. He says, to believe against personal interest requires an honest heart. It often requires little evidence to lead to the adoption of a pleasing sentiment, while the most conclusive evidence fails to produce conviction of an unwelcome truth. For example, the word everlasting, when applied to the future punishment of the wicked, 
is by some explained to mean always a limited duration. But when it's applied to the future happiness of the righteous, it is readily admitted to denote endless duration. If a man were to undertake seriously to prove that the word everlasting, when applied to the happiness of the righteous, means only a limited duration, and when applied to the punishment of the wicked, means an endless state of being, he would be pronounced a fool. And yet he would act no more irrationally than the man who adopts the opposite course of reasoning by which so many profess to be convinced. Therefore, we should exercise great caution in receiving doctrines which are pleasing to the natural heart and equal caution in rejecting doctrines to which the heart is opposed. I think that's wise advice. Five common notions that we've just considered about life after death. As I mentioned, they've come in many forms over the centuries. These are the basic ones, and as I said, they all exist still exist today. Of course, as Christians, our beliefs about this topic come from only one reliable source. We are sola scriptura. And I believe that the biblical teaching on life after death is more clear than obscure. I certainly wouldn't say it's perfectly clear, but I think it's definitely more clear than obscure. We're going to talk more about that next week, but I'd like to spend uh, the rest of this morning's message by considering the church's teaching over the centuries regarding life after death, at least what I consider to be the most solid teaching of the church on life after death, and that would be the statements in the Reformed Confessions. Now, many people criticize us as Reformed Christians for focusing so much on confessions that were written several centuries ago, but there's a reason we do that. The Reformation came after 15 centuries, or many centuries at least, of, uh, of accumulated error, one error piling up on top of another. And there had really been very little return to the Scripture in a systematic way to determine what does the Bible actually teach on the basic doctrines, including on this doctrine. I believe that the catechisms and confessions that were written during the years of the, of the early Reformation are some of the most valuable documents uh, for understanding biblical truth. They're a good place to start, at least, because, as I said, they were written to correct centuries of error. So I'd like to spend the rest of the, the morning reading through what these documents have to say about life after death. And as we do we'll notice how the errors that we've just talked about are addressed in various ways in these uh, statements. And I'd also ask you to notice, if you can, as we're considering these documents, and and by the way, so there's a handout uh, in your bulletin, I'm going to be reading directly from that. Uh, Notice how unified the statements of these confessions are when we take them all together. They do not disagree with each other. And I think that's a very significant point, uh, which we will talk about more next week. Let's begin with the second Helvetic Confession. This confession was written by the great Swiss reformer Heinrich Bullinger. It was written in 1562 and revised in 1864. For a time, it was the most broadly accepted belief statement of the early Reformed churches uh, in many European countries. 
Let's read from chapter 26, which is called Of the Burial of the Faithful and the Care uh, and of the Care to be Shown for the Dead of Purgatory and the Appearing of Spirits. The Burial of Bodies. As the bodies of the faithful are the temples of the Holy Spirit, which we truly believe will rise again at the last day, Scriptures command that they be honorably and without superstition be committed to the earth. And also that honorable mention be made of those saints who have fallen asleep in the Lord, and that all duties of familial piety be shown to those left behind, their widows and orphans. We do not teach that any other care be taken for the dead. Therefore, we greatly disapprove of the cynics who neglected the bodies of the dead or most most carelessly and disdainfully cast them into the earth, never saying a good word about the deceased or caring a bit about those whom they left behind. Now, when it's talking about honorable care for the bodies of the dead, what, what's, the, what's the error that's being addressed there? I would say dualism, right? The idea that the body is evil. Therefore, just cast it into the earth and show it no respect whatsoever. As Christians, we don't do that. Continue on. The care for the dead. On the other hand, we do not approve of those who are overly and absurdly attentive to the deceased, who, like the heathen, bewail their dead, Although we do not blame that moderate mourning, which the Apostle permits in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, judging it to be inhuman not to grieve at all, and who sacrifice for the dead and mumble certain prayers for pay in order by such ceremonies to deliver their loved ones from the torments in which they are immersed by death, and then think they are able to liberate them by such incantations. Okay, Um, what's the error that's being addressed here? Purgatory, right? Using incantations, and I I just love the subtle sarcasm (laughs) in some of these older writings, but uh, the idea that we can can use uh, ceremonies and incantations to somehow liberate souls that have already passed. Continue on. The state of the soul departed from the body, for we believe that the faithful after bodily death go directly to Christ, and therefore do not need the eulogies and prayers of the living for the dead and their services. Likewise, we believe that unbelievers are immediately cast into hell, from which no exit is open for the wicked by any services of the living. Okay, so they're addressing purgatory, and that paragraph is also addressing soul sleep. There is no soul sleep. The righteous, the faithful, go directly to Christ, and the wicked are immediately cast into hell, from which there is no exit. Let's move on to a a second uh, great document of the uh, Reformation era, and that is Ursinus' Larger Catechism. One of the most influential Reformed catechism, and it's one of what you might have heard this term, the three forms of unity uh, that are used in Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches. One of those three forms of unity was called the Heidelberg Catechism. That was published in 1563, and the main author of that catechism was Zacharias Ursinus, who also wrote his own larger catechism. These are some questions that appear in Ursinus's larger catechism. Question 128. What resurre- resurrection of the body do you confess? Answer. That when Christ returns to judge, all those who have died since the beginning of the world will receive the same bodies which they had in this life, only immortal and imperishable, 
And those who are living on earth at that time will be renewed by a sudden change, the godly to happiness and glory, the ungodly to torments and eternal disgrace. Question 129. What is this life everlasting of which you speak? Answer. It is a clear knowledge and praise of Christ in an eternal joy in him and the fullness of all good. Question 130. What does it mean to believe in the resurrection of the body? Answer, it means to be firmly convinced that on the last day, our bodies, which we now have, will be completely restored and our souls will be returned to them through the power of Christ so that we may enjoy with Christ both in body and soul eternal life and glory. Question 131, what does it mean to believe in the life everlasting? Answer, it means already now to feel in our hearts the beginnings of eternal life and to hold on to this comfort with all our might, that after this life we will enjoy it more fully, and after our bodies have also been raised through Christ, we will enjoy it perfectly. You see, the idea of Scripture is that we don't fully enjoy the blessings of the faithful until our bodies are restored to us. And I do believe the Scripture teaches that. Let's look to the next uh, document, the Belgic Confession. This, is also, this was one of the three forms of unity, along with the Heidelberg Catechism. And by the way, the third of those three forms of unity was the Canons of Dort. <coughs> um, the Belgic Confession was written primarily by the Dutch reformer, uh, Guido de Bray. He was also martyred for his faith. This was written in 1562, and it was revised in 1618 and 19. And that was, by the way, the great Calvinism Arminian controversy uh, that produced the Canons of Dort. So significant uh, uh, when that was revised. Uh, The Belgic Confession is still the accepted doctrinal summary of many Reformed churches. Article 37 of the Last Judgment says, first of all, finally... We believe according to the word of God when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, and the the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven, corporally and visibly, as he ascended, with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. Then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women and children, that have, been, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the trump of God. For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those who shall then be living... They shall not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then the books, that is to say the consciences, shall be opened, and the dead judged according to what they have done, uh, they shall have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all men shall give account of every auto word which they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. By the way, you notice all of these confessions uh, look to one final judgment, not the judgment of the righteous, then 
the thousand year millennium and then the judgment of the wicked. That's what dispensationalism teaches. None of these confessions teach that. In fact, I think they all openly uh, argue against that. And finally, that brings us to the Westminster <coughs> Confession. Of course, the Second Baptist Confession of uh, 1689 uh, was the Baptist version of the Presbyterian Westminster Confession. Presbyterian one came in 1646. The Savoy Declaration, which was the Congregationalist version, was written in 1658. And then in America, uh, it was, uh, the, that confession was slightly revised and published as the Philadelphia Confession. And uh, as the Philadelphia Confession, it became the accepted doctrinal statement for most Baptist churches in America. And that's a remarkable thing, considering uh, where most Baptist churches in America have come today. This confession covers the subject of the afterlife in chapter 31, of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead. It follows almost the exact wording of the Westminster and Savoy. This is what it says. Number one, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls which neither die nor sleep, see there's again a statement against soul sleep, their souls which neither die nor sleep, having an, uh, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being made perfect in holiness, are received into paradise, where they are with Christ, and behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places, for souls separated from their bodies, Scripture acknowledgeth none. So there's a statement against compartmentalization of any kind. Paragraph 2, at the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The body, of course, uh, in its glorified form, has been restored to perfection in conjunction with the second coming of Christ. And then paragraph 3 says, The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just, by his spirit, into honor, and be made conformable to his own glorious body. Now the confession, confessional statements we've just read are just one indication that until the rise of dispensationalism, I don't mean to harp against dispensationalism, but until the rise of dispensationalism, most churches were in general agreement uh, with the reformed statements of faith that we just read. They believed in one people of God. They believed that the one people of God contains both Jews and Gentiles. And together, Jews and Gentiles will inherit one kingdom of God. They will dwell together with Christ in one blessed place. We look together to one blessed return of Christ, to one bodily resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous together, occurring on one great day of judgment when both saved and unsaved will be judged together. Until dispensationalism... There really was no significant argument about those things that I just mentioned. 
when dispensationalism came into vogue and became popular, the commonly received views of the Reformation went out. And I think a veil of confusion has descended on the whole topic ever since. We have a lot of questions about the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead. What is the timeline of the resurrection of the dead? Are the just and the unjust judged at different times with a thousand years in between, as dispensationalists argue? And they use primarily Revelation 20 uh, as their primary evidence. Or are they judged at the same time? I think we can't study Revelation without at least attempting to answer those basic questions that I've just asked. I'd like to talk about those things next time, but for now, let's draw to a conclusion. And let me just ask you, what is your blessed hope about the resurrection? Do you have a blessed hope? If your thoughts are consumed with how to live your best life here, that's something to think about, by the way. The world, of course, is in turmoil. Even if it were completely peaceful, this old world is passing away, but your soul will live somewhere forever. So if you're consumed with the workings of this life that have nothing to do with eternity, then I guess I can say I pity you. If you continue outside of Christ, not covered by his blood, you will live forever, somewhere, but you'll be eternally condemned, separated from God, and in the presence of everything you've ever feared, and in fact in the presence of terrors you couldn't even imagine. I didn't say that, God did. Those are hard truths of Scripture for the unbeliever. But the good side is that if your soul is safe in Christ, if you're trusting in Him, if you're resting in Him, if you are believing in Him, then I would say, along with the confessions that I just read, that your eternal life has actually already begun. And you will live forever with the saints in blessed surroundings that we can't even imagine. And best of all, we'll be in his presence forever, rejoicing in his grace, laying our crowns at his feet, and rejoicing in his glory. Now, I'm sorry we haven't read a lot of scripture today. Let me just close with this passage from the book of 1 Peter. I'm going to read uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9 through 9, as we close this morning. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved with various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom not having seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, 
the salvation of your souls. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful promise. For those of us who have trusted on you, believed on you, I realize, dear Lord, that we all, when we look at our lives, we see many imperfections. We still live in a body that has been tainted and corrupted by sin. We are thankful, dear Lord, that the promise of redemption, even of the body, is a blessed thought. We live in bodies that uh, have been have been uh, have been weakened by not just by our own sin, but by the sin of the entire human race from the beginning. We live in a world that's been corrupted. Very creation itself groans in anticipation of the great day when Christ shall return and shall restore it to its original glory. Thank you, dear Lord, for the what you have told us about your creation, about man, that you are mindful of him despite our apparent smallness in the universe that you've made. Thank you, dear Lord, for directing your love to us especially through your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and died for us that we might have eternal life. Bless us as we continue to study the resurrection, to understand it more clearly, to remove confusion that perhaps has been left by theological systems, perhaps, that were not accurate. Thank you, dear Lord, for this time together. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.